0: The Whale Podcast, Episode Two Hundred and Seventy Five. What is your name? I'm Jeff Romig. Jeff, what was your substance of choice or DOC? Um,
1: I would say, I mean, alcohol for sure is is what brought me in, um, but I definitely use use food similarly to mm-hmm. how I used alcohol, so. Um, you know, there are, there are issues there too, um, but but alcohol, I never never really um, did any drugs. So just,
0: just straight up alcohol for me. I can relate to that. I was a little bit more equal opportunity than you, but alcohol <laughs> w- was my first substance love for sure. Maybe food was though, prior to, I had the quickest hand to the cookie jar. <laughs> When I was growing up, so maybe it was food roll along. What is your clean and sober date?
1: Uh, December third, twenty seventeen. And that's the day I picked up my white chip. So I, that's the day I count from.
0: That is a lot of one days at a time, my friend. Well done.
1: Thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, yeah, because my um, sobriety birthday was just a couple weeks ago, and. Um, I think it was around. I looked at my app that day, and it was like fourteen hundred and sixty-eight days. Um, so that was two weeks ago. So we're getting close to fifteen hundred days,
0: which is crazy. It really is, and they do add up. You and I have a very proximate sober birthday. Mine being on the sixth of December, and just celebrating seven years. So December is a fun month to get sober. I always say
1: it is. It is, um, you know. I'm glad I. I don't know. I, I like having my December date. It, you know, I, I chose it to a degree, but I also it kind of chose me as well. Um, it was it was the time the time to do it. But um, you know, there's definitely a, a lot more celebrating around the holidays. But I think you know for for alcoholics. We don't really need the excuse to the holidays to celebrate so <laughs> that's <laughs> you know. true that's it's true. always interesting to see you know new new people coming in in december and, and early january and um you know it's it's a time of the year that brings in a lot of people for sure whether they stay or not is another thing but.
0: indeed it is i can relate with the idea that my sober date chose me, I think, more than I chose it, for sure. Jeff, how do you serve the recovery community?
1: You know, I I, I think mainly I serve by telling my own story, um, staying sober, not going, or continuing to go to meetings. Um, at, at present, I don't have a service position I have before. Um, I do sort of go by the rule that if I'm asked to do something, if I can do it, then I, I am as close up to you can get to required to, <laughs> um, you know, whether it's chairing a meeting or, um, you know, if I was asked to do a service position and, and I, you know, could, I, I would feel a responsibility to. Um, but yeah, at present, I don't have a service position and, and at present, I'm not sponsoring anyone. But, um, but in general, that's my, you know, if someone asked me to sponsor them, I would, I would feel um, like I needed to do that. And if I was asked to hold a position, I would do that too. And like I said, I have before, but I think, I think my main service on a, on a daily, weekly basis is just trying to show up to meetings, call other alcoholics, share my own story. Um, you know, and and be available to to say yes when when needed. It's, you know, yes and is sort of the number one rule of improv, and it's also a pretty big rule in AA too, even though we don't frame it that way. Indeed.
0: Um, indeed. And telling our stories and being available and going to meetings is of tremendous value it's how i started to get better and started to realize that for the very first time in my life i was amongst people that felt like i felt did what i did drank like i drank and these people were getting better
1: yeah
0: and that allowed me for the very first time to truly believe that i could get better too and That doesn't happen if we're not sharing our stories. That doesn't happen if we're not going to meetings.
1: Yeah, totally. I mean silent meetings are awkward. (laughs) So (laughs) luckily silent meetings don't stay silent for too long because people can't tend to sit there and be awkward, so somebody usually speaks up. No uh, doubt about it. Which is which is good. So um, but yeah, I mean, I I also you know I feel like in meetings when I'm when I'm thinking something um, that I feel like I should contribute, I sort of feel whether it's a higher power thing or or not. I I feel like you know if if the same sort of thought is recurring in my head during a meeting while people are sharing um, off of the topic, um, you know, I. I usually feel like I'm being called to share and, and and do, and then, you know, other meetings, when I don't get that sort of feeling, I,
0: I know I'm there
1: in those meetings to listen
0: more, so. Absolutely. Jeff, what does recovery mean to you?
1: I mean, recovery for me is, um, a very, a very active word. Um, It's not a word that ends. It's a word, you know, it's a, it's a concept that keeps on going and looks differently. You know, if you ask me in a week or a month or a year, uh, it would look different. Um, So it's just sort of this, um, you know, recovery is a journey. And I got on that journey on December 3rd, 2017 and continue to be on it and, you know, as we go on this journey, we we gain new new tools and and new relationships and um you know that help us navigate and um you know choose our different paths as we continue as we continue on the journey. I I, I sound like I feel like I sound like I'm making it seem like a video game. Where, uh, <laughs> you know, An RPG a, game? The 12 12- 12-step video game um, (laughs) where you're just, you know, like Zelda, where you're just, like, picking up new tools and, you know, to fight off different monsters. and But it's kind of true, right? I mean, that's what what it is. It's this, um, you know, once we do it and commit to it, it's there is no end date. There is no end game. It's just a lifelong journey and, you know, where, you know, as dark as it may sound, like, the only way we win is to is to ultimately
0: end our lives sober. Indeed. Indeed. I've never thought of recovery as it relates to a Nintendo role-playing game, but that's amazing Fame. because Zelda is hands down my favorite Nintendo game. Absolutely. It had the it had the gold cartridge. How could it not be? Precisely. Yeah. Absolutely. The other thing I would say, Jeff, going back to how do you serve the recovery community, I would certainly say the book that you wrote is of service to the recovery community, even though it's not directly about sobriety and recovery. Don't effing kill yourself has a lot of value for those of us who are in recovery.
1: Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I think the, you know, I, the book, the book only exists because I got sober. Um, I mean, I think first and foremost, um, I don't know that I would have been well enough or had the tools that I needed to face off against my own emotional demons um, to write the book without, you know, without my sobriety journey. Um, I guess in 2020, when I wrote it, I was about two, or uh, when I started, I was about, um, two and a half years sober. And then, you know, it came out this past November. Um, but you know, the core audience for the book is definitely people who struggle with mental illness, especially suicidal ideation. And I think there is definitely a big overlap um, with folks that struggle with suicidal ideation and folks that struggle with addiction. Um, and so, you know, and then the, the sort of next ring of audience for me is um, people who, who have loved ones that struggle with suicidal ideation. And, you know, that, you know, covers Probably the majority of the rest of the sobriety, recovery, addiction community. So, um, I definitely think it's um, you know it's a way that I've I've decided to share my story on a on a bigger level than just sharing in a meeting, um, and it's you know definitely got some some specifics about about recovery um, for me um, and my experience in the rooms. Um, so yeah, I, I hope. I definitely hope it's, it is being of service by sharing it, um, and I certainly wouldn't have been able to, to, do, to do the work and write the book without, you know, the, the journey, the recovery journey, um, the health journey uh, that I'd been on since December 3rd, 2017.
0: Without question, it was of service to me Thank when you. I read it. And I truly believe it will be of service to others who struggle with addiction, alcoholism, or mental illness. No question, the co-occurrence of mental illness amongst those who struggle with addiction or alcoholism is extremely high.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I appreciate the opportunity to get to talk to you and you know spread the word about the book a little more and and just talk about recovery for sure
0: welcome way out faithful and first timers to this week's installment of the way out podcast we appreciate your ears our mission is simple to bring you powerful recovery stories and recovery power topics so you can jump start or re-energize your recovery from alcoholism and addiction The Way Out Podcast does not speak on behalf of nor are we affiliated with any 12-step organization. The Way Out Podcast partners with All Recovery Rings and AllRecoveryRings.com where you'll find stunning recovery rings made from your very own recovery coin. That's AllRecoveryRings.com. The Way Out Podcast is a proud supporter of Transitions Daily. Would you like to join a free anonymous online group that offers a daily topic email with popular recovery resources accompanied by a secret facebook group for discussion go to dailyaaemails.com for more information about transitions daily don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends in meetings and with sponsees in recovery Make sure to check us out on the web at www.wayoutcast.com. There you can subscribe to ensure you get the latest episodes first on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Help us recover out loud by giving us a five-star rating and review on your favorite podcast app. Your voice matters, so share your thoughts on recovery with us by calling us at 218-382-1960 or leaving a message with us on the Anchor app, available for Android and Apple. Someone, somewhere, needs to hear your share. Finally, a word of caution, this podcast may contain strong language and mature content. Listener discretion is advised. The Way Out Podcast is on right now. I'm Charlie, and in this rendition of The Way Out, I'm incredibly honored to bring you my interview with writer, author, and person in long-term recovery, Jeff Romig. Jeff shares his journey to and through recovery to this point with us from both alcoholism and suicidal ideation, and the inspiration behind his new, incredibly relatable, and well-written book, Don't Fucking Kill Yourself a memoir of suicide, survival, and stories that keep us alive. The book reads like my memory works, which is to say it's not written in chronological order, yet as the story unfolds, it very much feels it's happening in just the order it's supposed to. Well documented is the incident of the co-occurrence of addiction and mental illness, and my experience and that of many others who've shared their stories with us is that only through actively addressing both the alcoholism or addiction, along with the mental health disorder, does true recovery and wellness begin to take hold and indeed flourish. That certainly is echoed in masterful fashion in Jeff's book and throughout the interview, where there's no shortage of recovery and spiritual truth, and perhaps the best part is we didn't forget to have a little fun in our discussion along the way. So listen up. Jeff Romig, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to join us here on the Way Out podcast. I can't wait to dig into the new book that you wrote, Don't Fucking Kill Yourself. You're a person in long-term recovery. You're a writer. And you're here with us, and I couldn't be happier about it. Why don't you take a moment to introduce yourself to the Way Out podcast audience? Tell us a little bit about yourself and we'll get started.
1: Awesome. Thank you for having me. Um, yes, yeah, so I'm Jeff Romig. I live in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, I have spent my career as a storyteller, first as a journalist, then um, as a nonprofit executive and then and also as a political campaign manager um, and last month on November 2nd my first book Don't Fucking Kill Yourself a memoir of suicide survival and stories that keep us alive um, was published and excited to be here to talk about the book and about recovery.
0: Indeed the book is written in such a cool way. We're going to get into that in a little bit, because as I read through it, it was just, you know, an amazing read for a variety of different reasons. Before we dig into that, though, I want to share a little bit about your journey to recovery. Uh, you Uh Tell us a little bit about what, what it was like growing up. Where did you grow up? And, you know, then tell us a little bit about your recovery journey. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I grew up in a
1: kind of middle, upper middle-class family um, in Columbia, South Carolina. Um, In the 90s, I'm 43, so um, definitely a 90s kid. Um, Didn't drink much growing up, and, and then my dad died by suicide when I was 18, and in the wake of that, I decided I wasn't going to I was going to be strong and not deal with it with substances. And so I didn't really start drinking um, until the end of college. And even then uh, was a pretty moderate drinker. Um, and then found later on in my life that drinking really became about social anxiety for me. And just I needed I like brown liquor and I needed a couple bourbons to deal with social situations. And um, and then at some point in 2014. Um, my marriage of almost 13 year, years was kind of crumbling and my relationship with alcohol just started to change. And, and in my blood chemistry, as much as anything, I just couldn't have two drinks anymore. And, um, just was, you know, drinking more and more excessively when I was drinking, I was a binge drinker, um, didn't drink too much at home. Um, but, you know, really just to tame that social anxiety, but as I did that, more and more, um, the the nights drinking, tonight's drinking to blackout, were becoming a circle Venn diagram. By the end of twenty seventeen, um, I got, di- I ended up getting divorced in twenty fifteen, and you know, just sort of steadily increased um, drinking and bad behavior, and dr- drinking and driving, and hitting on friends and, you know, things that I wish I hadn't done, but, you know, luckily um, didn't physically harm anyone, didn't, you know, lucky to not get a DUI or or anything like that. But my, just the way I was treating people in 2017 wasn't great and um, ended up getting me fired off a political campaign, which I had never in my life been fired before. And um, and the feedback I was given about um, my behavior, you know, the, the things that were mentioned were all connected to when I was drinking, and, and I knew that there were, you know, the drinking and driving, I, I knew about nobody else really did because I didn't, you know, luckily get a DUI, um, but I was fortunate um, that my college roommate and best friend um, from growing up, got sober in 2001. And so I called him and I said, look, I, I don't drink every night. I don't, you know, I don't drink at home. I, you know, I drink, here's how I drink, but I see these connections and I, I, the person I'm being isn't the person that I am and that I, that I want to act like. And so can I come, he lives in Charlotte. So I was like, can I come to Charlotte and talk about it? And, you know, maybe we can go to a meeting and, um, so he, he, on Saturday, December 2nd, 2017, um, I went to Charlotte and he gave me he, that evening. He said, you know, here's, here's a copy of, of the big book. Um, and he circled some things for me to read and said, read these. And then in the morning, if you feel like you want to go to a meeting, we'll go to a meeting. And I said, all right. So I spent a couple hours that night, you know, reading and, um, you know, definitely seeing things that I related to and seeing things that I didn't relate to. Um, but I definitely wanted to go to, to that meeting. And, um, when I did, it was, and I, I write about this in the book pretty specifically, you know, I really felt like it was designed for me to be like, Oh, I'm not this bad. (laughs) Um, you know, I, I can, I can go back drinking and, you know, it was 12 DUIs or, you know, jail time or, you know, illness and, you know, just things I hadn't experienced, luckily. Um, But, you know, by the grace of of God, I guess, which I didn't necessarily, um, wasn't necessarily connected to a higher power at that point, um, you know, sort of put the thought in my head that I don't want to keep building this resume and, I'm gonna pick up a white chip today and I'm gonna go back to Atlanta and and start figuring out how to get sober and stay sober and um, get myself back to the person that you know I am at heart and want to be and um, so I started that journey and
0: and remain on it uh, So many things about that, Jeff are. Extremely relatable. I'm also a 90s kid, 43 years young. So we came up at the same time with the same tremendous music. I might add. And you talk about this idea that the person you had become wasn't the person you wanted to be anymore.
1: Yeah,
0: And I can very much relate to that because prior to getting sober this last time in 2014, the distance between who I was at that moment and who I wanted to be, thought I maybe at one point could be, was Mm -hmm. so big. I didn't know if I could ever close that gap.
1: Right. Yeah, I remember feeling that exactly, exactly right now.
0: That's a painful feeling.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it. you know, I just felt like I was I was in free fall. And the only thing I could do to stop it was
0: just start. Recovering, you know, and that's the magic of. Living in recovery one day at a time and sharing our story, your friend was able to help you out because you knew he was sober mm-hmm. right? and he's the person you turn to. And that's the magic. And it, it's the same thing for me. I mean, I went to treatment. I wasn't trying to get sober. I went to treatment so, so I wouldn't get divorced again. Mm-hmm. Um, but as soon as I really genuinely admitted in that treatment counselor's office that I was an addict and an alcoholic and I needed help in the worst way. The first person I called was my best friend growing up, who I knew was sober. And. He did the same thing. He talked about the big book and he talked about, you know, certain things that made any and he just shared how he did it. Like he just shared how he did it. And I started doing those things, too. And that's the magic of it. Yeah.
1: Right.
0: And that's yeah. beautiful. And it-
1: And looking back at it, like just knowing, you know, you can't, the individual has to be ready to do it. And all we can do is, is talk about what works for us. And, you know, my friend didn't say, yeah, man, you're really fucking up. We're going (laughs) to take, I'm going to take you down to a meeting. He said, read this. If you want to go, we'll go.
0: 100%.
1: And, you know, created created that space um, so that I could make a decision, um, you know, to, to really understand that I was, I was powerless over alcohol and my life had become unmanageable. And, you know, and I think one of the things that really kept me going in that early, you know, the, the more and more that I heard stories that weren't like mine, the more the third tradition, um, was so key for me because it said to me, it does, it doesn't matter if you didn't drink like everybody and, and you drank like you, it just matters that you're, you have a desire to stop drinking. And I did. And, you know, um, and that helped me again, not, not give me an out to say, I'm not, this bad or whatever, Um, but that I knew I had a desire to stop drinking. And, you know, I belong there as much as anybody who had a desire to stop drinking.
0: Absolutely. And the idea that there is some sort of requirement in order to be a, quote, real alcoholic or, quote, real addict is complete BS. And that third tradition states that very clearly. Yeah. And the reality is we all have different quote unquote bottoms. Sometimes it's an emotional bottom. Sometimes it's a spiritual bottom. Sometimes it's a financial bottom. Sometimes it's a consequence bottom. Sometimes it's all of it.
1: Yeah.
0: Or any combination of them. But as soon as we want to stop digging, that's our bottom. And and then if we want to get better, we uh, we have a 12 a step program that can help us do that, Jeff. I intimately related with a lot of the book for a lot of different reasons. First and foremost, my mom died of cancer when I was 11 years old and the catastrophic Sorry. loss. Thank you, brother, that that. Was at that time. I can relate in terms of you losing your father uh, to suicide. It's different. It's, it's different. But the loss, you know, is is um, of a magnitude that's very difficult to put into words. You, my friend, put it into words very well. So uh, well done there. Um, some themes that I picked out of the book that I love, there's there's absolutely a theme of baseball all the way throughout the book. There's the theme of recovery all the way throughout the book. And then there's just an honest, authentic experience of what mental illness, specifically suicidal ideation, how that manifests within yourself, how you saw it with your father and how that can be dealt with um, on a very authentic and real level. And the title of the book. Don't fucking kill yourself. Is great. Maybe you can start by explaining to our audience how you came up with that title, because it's not just it. Chosen out of thin air. And then tell us a little bit about the inspiration and genesis for writing this book?
1: Yeah. So the title, um, you know, it definitely is an eye catcher, but it it comes from a real story. And and that story is um, a little more than 10 years ago. Now, someone asked me a friend asked me if you could only say one more thing to your dad, what would you say? And that was my answer, because that would that's the only thing you know, I could say in that moment, and if, if I had that opportunity, which obviously I won't, um, but, you know, suicide is that serious. And so it and it isn't just the title for the book. It's actually a mantra that I hope hmm. people who deal with suicidal ideation will say to themselves, uh, because um, when we get down to it with our suicidal ideation, it is it's not between us and anyone else. It's between us and ourselves. And we're those darkest moments. We are, are typically alone. And, you know, the, the three things that I hope people take away from the book, you know, I say in the book, it's not a self-help book, it's a memoir, you know, but I really, you know, the first tool that I hope people have is to share their story. I'm, I'm trying to share mine kind of going first and, um, hoping other people will share how they deal with suicidal ideation. The second one is, um, you know, find ways to connect with the people, passions, and experiences from your life that bring you joy. Um, those things in my darkest moments help me stay alive, and and those are the stories that I t- told in the book. And um, and then the third thing is that mantra: don't fucking kill yourself. Um, and you know, those those things together aren't necessarily a a silver bullet, so to speak, um, or panacea. Um, They're just the tools that I have that I'm sharing. And I I hope to get other tools from other people who share and, you know, that ultimately by just changing the dynamics of the conversation around suicidal ideation, we can create more of a collective toolbox um, that aren't just sort of, you know, medical best practices but are things that real people do to to get them through those moments um which again can can be life or death literally um and so that's those are the sort of three three tips and tools that i wanted to um to pass along um with with my memoir stories and um and hope that other people can Um, benefit from them and, and see themselves in those stories. I mean, the best compliment I can be given from someone who reads this book is, you know, this chapter that you wrote on this made me think of this thing for my life. Like that's the best compliment I can be given because that's the hope is that, you know, maybe you don't love baseball like I do. um, But if I write about it with enough passion, then maybe it makes you think of the thing that you love like that from your life, whether it's dance or NASCAR or golf or whatever, you know? Um, And so that was, you know, something I really worked hard to do was to be as authentic as possible, but, you know, on that spectrum from pain to joy. And um, that's not the easiest thing to do because a lot of it's embarrassing, (laughs) you know, it it feels embarrassing to, to share stories of how, you know i my depression won't let me get out of bed and things like that but i know that that's authentic and it it's the only reason the only way that this book will resonate with people who who struggle similarly is by being as authentic as i possibly could um so that they feel that that it's not just you know oh this guy got to do cool things through his job in journalism or whatever um but like You know, oh, here's this thing that he struggles with that I struggle with, too. And so, you know, I know I know he's not bullshitting me. Um.
0: Don't fucking kill yourself reads like my memory works, Jeff. And that was one of the most beautiful things about the book. And you interwove stories and vignettes about your passions with stories about debilitating depression that prevented you from even getting out of bed. And that reads like how my life works. I've read a lot of recovery memoirs. And every recovery story matters and it all has value. Absolutely. But I think so many of us can connect to this idea that. We had a. corticopia of experiences prior to getting. Into recovery and. Connecting to the meeting and the in. and the joy. And our passions in life. Whether that's a reconnection or whether that's finding and experiencing new ones. It is a giant part of what we're trying to accomplish. Mm-hmm. Here in recovery, because if, if recovery wasn't worthwhile, if it wasn't fun, if it wasn't meaningful. Why would we do it? Just like if life wasn't meaningful and fun and in valuable to us, why would we stay alive when we're battling this debilitating depression? Yeah. So I really appreciated that. Thank you.
1: Yeah, I think we forget. And that's part of that point. You know, we, when we are in a position where our anxiety is triggering panic attacks or our depression is keeping us in bed, it's hard for us to, you know, to remember things that bring us joy. And, you know, but those things are in our lives. And um, we just have to take the time to, you know, connect with them, keep them in mind, so that we can go to them, you know, when we when we need them, because, you know, um, I mean, we were just saying like, I'm almost 1500 days sober. I'm 43 years, almost 44 years old, however many days that is. And, (laughs) you know, and there are just over 60 chapters in this book. Right. So there's lots of days in my life, both good and bad that, you know, weren't, weren't touched on, on in this book, but, the things that are touched on are are things that you know connect me with with those people, passions, and experiences that you know. A lot of which were joyful, and it's hard when we're trying to manage a panic attack or trying to get out of bed when we're when we're kind of emotionally paralyzed um, to remember that joy is a thing and is possible. Um, but remembering examples of it is the way to do it, you know, and, um, and not losing touch with, with those things. Um, like I said, it's not a, it's not a panacea, but it's, you know, when it comes down to that moment where, um, you know, we're, we're making a plan to die. Um, you know, perspective and remembering the faces of people who are alive that love us and don't want to lose us um, can be enough to tip the scales in the direction that keeps us alive. And that's um, and that's obviously huge.
0: And that's a practice, right? Yeah, absolutely. That we have to work on. Yeah, Just like the practices that we're working on in recovery. uh That we're not good at at the beginning and that feel a little foreign and uncomfortable. If you're in a place where you're suffering from a panic attack or debilitating depression and actively and mindfully and intentionally conjuring and I love this—the people, passions, and experiences that bring value and meaning to our lives. But it's possible to do that.
1: Yeah, when that's you know, you mentioned like how time works in our minds, and yeah, I tried to I tried to write the book that way um, because you know, when you're in when you're in the darkest moment, moments of suicidal ideation those those memories can flood in if you can turn on the right you know on the right faucet and um you know and they can and they can shift your your, your mindset in that moment and so um you know the way that i wrote the book was initially conceived because of how we experience time but specifically from the idea that if our lives flash before our eyes what would we see and in my opinion, we wouldn't see whatever we would see in chronological order. <laughs> and so that was kind of the initial, well, I'm going to tell the story out of order. And, you know, the book definitely has a story arc that I hope that I hope makes sense and, you know, doesn't get anyone lost. Um, cause it does jump around. Um, but like you said, it is our minds, our minds jump around. They don't work in a linear timeline kind of fashion. And so, Um, you know, that was a big, a big part of the writing decision when I was conceiving the book and, and you asked like why I decided to do it in the first place. And, um, I had had the idea just, you know, I was just always haunted by, as my dad was like sitting in the car with carbon monoxide, filling the car before he lost consciousness. What was he, what was he thinking about? And obviously that's not a question I can ever get an answer to. Um, but I always, you know, that always kind of haunted me and, and then connected that idea of, you know, flash life flashing before our eyes and, you know, what would I think about? And so, you know, I wanted to, this past February was the 25th anniversary of his suicide. So in 2020, I decided I would, I would write it leading up to, to the anniversary as a observation
0: of the, the 25th anniversary. And so... It's a beautiful thing, Jeff. And that's why the book felt so organic as I was reading it. Because my memories visit me out of order. All the time. Mm -hmm. And I'll be visited by a memory from my childhood. And then that'll connect to a memory from my 20s, which will connect to a more recent memory. Yeah. And it's that interweaving, that fabric of memories that in large part help make up my experiences on a day in and day out basis. So reading through the book felt very organic that way, which was great. And the idea that it was conceived as And inspired by this idea of what was my father thinking the moments before he lost consciousness is both beautiful and haunting, for sure. And in the book, you talk about the letters that he wrote, which were very intentional prior to his suicide. And the effect that those letters had on you, especially the one obviously that he wrote to you that you really carried with you for quite some time.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, to to this day. And, you know, the interesting part about it is, is that when I wrote the book and I revisited his letter to me, um, I hadn't read it. I mean, in it in probably close to 15 years um, at least 10 for sure um, and so you know it was interesting um, a concept I talk about in the book is that like our trauma is the constant and we are the variable and his letter is like you know the um, a symbol of that that this letter that I re- read and held in my hand when I was 18, And that I was reading as I wrote this book at 42 is the same exact piece of paper and it hasn't changed at all, but what I'm getting from it is totally different because in 25 years, I've continued to change. And, you know, what I read at 18 versus what I read at 25 versus what I read at 30 and then 42, um, you know, different perspective, different insight. um, And, you know, that was, that was a big deal. And it really helped me. um, I mean, the whole writing of this book really helped me get to a much better place in my grief journey. um, Different, obviously, from my recovery journey. um, And just, it's kind of, kind of incredible, the personal progress I made. just by the writing process and digging into um, memories and emotions and, you know, some that I hadn't dealt with at all, some that I thought that I dealt with that I hadn't dealt with. And um, it was, you know, it was it was a kind of a fascinating process. And I always said, you know, my my first goal with this book was to write it and do the work you know, the, not just the writing work, but the emotional work. Um, And then, you know, whether or not I had a publisher or or anything, and then, and then the second goal is to find a publisher. And then the third goal was to, you know, hope to get it in front of as many people that it could, that it could impact. But I knew no matter what, you know, by the time it was published, it had already made a major difference in one person's life because it, it definitely, uh, made a massive, massive difference in my life just the work that I did and the progress I made personally um, by doing this exploration
0: so when you talk about the letter didn't change but you did and that you didn't read it for 15 years I can relate to that it reminds me and I haven't thought of this Jeff for a long time but my mom was interviewed to be a part of a book before she died. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, and it was women's stories about breast cancer. And I got a copy of the book and my dad gave it to us right after she died. And, you know, I I I can't remember if I read it. I kind of think I did, but I don't remember. And I was in such... Paralyzing, overwhelming grief. That if I read it, I don't really remember it. Yeah, and then I just put it away. Like I wanted no part of it. I didn't want to read it. I wasn't ready. I cu- I just couldn't. And when I got sober this time, December six, two thousand and fourteen, I also engaged in therapy for the first mm-hmm. time meaningfully as a part of that process. So I was working a program of recovery and I was in therapy in parallel. Yeah. And this therapist was transformational. I didn't expect that because I did not have good experiences in therapy prior to that. Part of that was me, for sure. But I think part of it was the fit of the therapist. And she Recommended EMDR therapy, which allowed me to move through the trauma of my mother's death in a way that felt safe. Mm -hmm. And took away so much of the paralyzing power it had over me every time I re experienced it. And I would re-experience it fairly often throughout that 15 plus years prior to entering recovery and therapy. Mm hmm. And then I read that book. I was finally ready and I pulled it out and read that book. And it read much like a note, a and I believe I believe this, Jeff, that she wanted us to read that us kids and yeah. myself and my two brothers.
1: I'm sure she did.
0: Because there was a lot in there about what she wanted for us, mm-hmm. you know, and I don't know that I know I wouldn't have been ready to receive it in the way that I really needed to receive it until I did that work. Yeah. You know?
1: Yeah, no, totally. And I, you know, I've added an epilogue to the book in August, right? Really the at almost the last possible moment that I could change anything with the book. And I did that because I got a chance t- to go Memorialized my dad's parents who died respectively in January 2020 and then May of 21. And at the same time, my dad's sister sent my brother and I an audio recording that my dad had made in 1978 um, on Halloween. And I was in the recording as like a 10 month old, um, or an eight month old actually. And um And it ended up being like this new set of last words from him, which was amazing, you know, but I, you know, again, it came to me when it was supposed to come to me. I didn't know, you know, I don't know how I would have received that if it had even been two years ago. Right. Like after I'd done all this work of the book and that sort of came in, right at that kind of last moment um, and let me, you know, again, reflect on him differently Um, based on the reflection I had already just done on him for the book, um, you know, these things happen. We find these things when we're supposed to find these things, even if we've had them, you know, um, in one way or another in a box for years. So I totally relate to that.
0: As you move through life, And we get to experience these moments of time in your life, alternating from early life to mid to, you know, more recent times. We finally get to a point where you're meaningfully and intentionally connecting to these really amazing experiences, which I deeply connected with the idea that cooking for you was this really almost healing experience for you, yeah. this this uh, therapeutic experience for you. But before you got to this point where you were experiencing these passions and people and experiences in really a therapeutic way, there was definitely in my mind, as I was reading through this, like this idea that your dad lost the battle to this thing, right? Mm -hmm. And you have this same condition in, were you afraid of yourself prior to getting to a point where you were feeling like you had some tools and some some ways to manage this thing were you scared of what you might do to yourself based on what you lived through with your dad
1: oh yeah for sure yeah I think it was I always felt like I mean really until until some point in the process of writing the book I always really felt like I was walking his same path to suicide by the time I'm 47. Cause that's how he, old he was. Um, I think the reality is that on February 24th, 1996, his life was unmanageable and he chose to end it. And on December 3rd, 2017, my life was unmanageable and I chose to stay alive and get sober. Um, you know, I think through the work of the book, I know now that I was never necessarily on his path. I've always been on my path. Um, But if I was, then, um, you know, I got off that path on December 3rd, 2017, when I asked for help. Um, And then I've continued to be on my own path. And, you know, and now I don't, I feel like a lot of that hopelessness, you know, exacerbated my paralysis by depression and things like that and that's not to say that i don't have days where i can't get out of bed now cuz i do mm-hmm. but i think now i know like now i'm 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 still trying to figure out how to how to really live and thrive but i'm not as i'm i'm not scared anymore about dying at my own hands like i feel like i've at least at this point in my life, I have found the tools that I need to stay alive. Um, But I haven't, but I'm in this sort of middle place where (laughs) I I haven't exactly found all the tools I need to, to live and to thrive in the way that I want to. But I do think that um, the tools of, of, you know, through the 12 steps that I have, you know, give me a roadmap and I just have to continue to work them and, Um, You know, and I'll get to that point. But yeah, I'm not I'm not scared of of my own suicide anymore. The way that I used to be.
0: So you don't have the master sword yet, Mm -mm. (laughs) but but you're not swordless and shieldless yet either. Right. Which really speaks to much of what we've been. Talking about in terms of recovery being a journey, grief being a journey, and being able to manage mental illness being a journey, and I can relate with all of that. It's not a end point. It will always be. You know the the death of my mother will be with me till the day I die. Mm-hmm. Two. And it just changes and evolves. Yep, with me, absolutely. And how I experience it changes and evolves.
1: Yeah, and how and how you change and evolve will change and will you know impact how you experience that you know as well. Like I, I think there's just this this societal idea that we're supposed to get over trauma in some kind of timeline, and I think it's. Just like grief, trauma is a journey and it's, you know, the trauma doesn't change. It is what it is and it's frozen in time and we change and then we re-experience the trauma through other experiences, good and bad, Um, you know, and I think if we're aware of that, then we can save time and energy beating ourselves up for not, you know, being over something. Um, that we're not intended to get over. As you talked
0: about the hope you have for folks that read Don't Fucking Kill Yourself is that they connect to your experience and find their Why? in the people experiences and passions that really move them and provide meaning and purpose in their lives
1: absolutely and i you know and for sure i don't think everybody who reads this has to write their own memoir in, in in its fashion but they could you know i mean that's the thing is like it's it's certainly a blueprint for a book of your own if you want it to be but it's definitely a blueprint for um you know connecting with the people passions and experiences in your life and um you know and taking the time to um to not lose touch with with those things that that truly matter to you and and really even take the time to think about the things that truly matter to you i mean i think the one of the early steps in the book process for me was mapping out things that I might, you know, want to write about stories I might want to tell. And it was about 150 things in a spreadsheet, you know, that I ultimately called down to, um, you know, what's in the book. So we all have just so many things from our life that are good that it's so easy to forget about when we are actively experiencing, our own anxiety, depression, suicidal ideation, addiction. Um, And so, you know, but hopefully for folks that read read my book, they can just put some intentionality to seeing the parallels to their own lives and and the things, the people, the passions, experiences that bring them joy. And then, you know, hopefully that, those connections and, and that perspective will help them in their darkest moments. That's, that's all I can hope from this.
0: And when we're in our darkest moments and in an episode of despair, that's what's missing in our now in that moment is the things that really matter to us and make life worth while So connecting to those things and again, making that a practice can be a incredibly useful way to move through that as intense as it is and debilitating as it can be. One of the first things I learned in recovery is that I didn't have to act the way I felt. Mm -hmm. And I always thought I had to act the way I felt. And I felt really bad a lot yeah with depression and anxiety and despair and shame and i acted that way yeah recovery taught me that i didn't have to act the way i felt that i could accept the way that i felt that i feel like nothing matters but i don't have to act that way yeah And it also taught me that I can act my way out of it, even though I don't feel it. I can act my way out of it. And then my brain eventually follows. Sometimes it's more stubborn than others, man. But but my brain does follow. If I do something that I know intellectually provides meaning and value to my life, Mm -hmm. even though I'm just not feeling it,
1: Yeah, it's it's the move a muscle, change a thought concept, and and yeah, and I struggle with this. I know that when my when my actions are tethered to my feelings, my life will be chaos. Um, That it will, you know. But if if I can, regardless of how I'm feeling, do you know deal with my actions (laughs) and do the right next thing then the feelings will come around but you know um we are alcoholics are undisciplined as we are told, <laughs> okay. and it's it's easier said than done but but again i think there's i think that's one of the great things for me about program is that once we learn these tools we can't unlearn them and um You know, and that voice in our head, I call it my higher power. Other people can call it whatever they want, but it's directing us to do the next right thing, even when we don't want to. And, you know, the more what I found is, you know, there's there's sort of those two voices, that angel and devil. And the more that I do the next right thing, the more present that positive voice becomes and the negative voice gets quieter um you know and um and that's at the end of the day what this is all about is just doing the next right thing Um, for me not drinking going to meetings calling other alcoholics um and you know and and i love the elasticity of the program that on my worst day, as long as I don't take a drink, it was a good day. Mm -hmm. And on other days I can explore the intricacies of the program and I can do more and I can be more of service. And, um, you know, there's, there's all the things that I can do, but you know, if I just get up and throughout that day, don't have a drink, then uh, you know, that's the only thing that I've done right every day since December 3rd, 2017. And, you know, and we're told the first step is the only step, not even that we're supposed to work perfectly, but it's the only step that we can work perfectly. And so, you know, everything else, it's, it goes back to that idea that recovery is a journey steps two through 12 are, you know, fluid and we got to keep working them and, Working through the steps once isn't enough. We have to do it, you know, with some some level of consistency um, to stay healthy and so that resentments don't drive us back into our addiction. Um, we have to, you know, we have to keep keep those things at bay through the tools we're you know we're given. And I don't like I said, it's it's a lot easier said than done. But the ability to be able to say it. And, and be present with those ideas is, you know, the first step, small s, in the path to doing these things better is the, you know, the intentionality of knowing these things and not being able to un- unlearn them, um, you know, helps me live a better life. Um, even when I'm not doing it quote unquote perfectly, I'm still so much better than I was four years ago. Um, and you know, when I think about almost ending my life a few days before I picked up my white chip and I think about everything that's transpired in between, you know, I'm, I still had anxiety and depression and all of these things have still been present for this whole time, but I've had a lot of other things that have been really good that I'm glad that I stayed alive to experience, you know, and that's, that's also something that helps me um, know that like, I'm learning how to stay, stay alive. And now I got to figure out, you know, just how to live and thrive a little more. But, you know, just, just the idea that, If these things happened in the past four years after I could have ended my life, you know, if I'm feeling that way tomorrow, the same would be true of the next four years. And so, you know, sometimes, you know, logic and experience can
0: be powerful tools, too. Without question. And it speaks to this being a practice and that, as long as I hit my pillow sober, the rest of it I can work on, I can improve upon, and I can learn from. Yeah, it's progress, it's, not perfection. That's it. That's it. And some days, man, are better than others. <laughs> yeah. Some days my character defects get the better of me, no doubt about it. Less now than. In the beginning for sure, but it still happens. But I know as long as I hit my pillow sober tonight, that I have the opportunity and the ability to be able to continue my practice. Absolutely. And that's a beautiful thing. And without substances, I'm learning and I'm and I'm growing. Substances kept me sick, they kept me stuck. Right. My addictions kept me stuck. Alcohol kept me stuck. The other thing you mentioned invoked was a higher power. And I don't know if it was like this for you, but it certainly was like this for me. Losing my mom at 11. I hated God. I hated God. I wanted no part of a God that would take away mm-hmm. a boy's mother at the age of 11. Yeah. I, you can have them. Like, I just don't need them. I'll do this thing on my own, right? And I vacillated between hating God's guts and and believing that there wasn't one because what kind of world has a God that, you know... And then, of course, piling on all these other negative experiences that if there was a God, then why would he let these things happen too, right? But fundamentally, if there was a God, why would he allow this to happen to me? Mm -hmm. And then getting into recovery... And having that gift of desperation, like I just had to wipe the slate clean and I just started praying to a God that I had no concept of, that I had no understanding of. And my higher power revealed himself to me through my actions, through getting down on my knees and just saying simple help, like help. And at the end of the day, thank you. But I meant it. And then that higher power started changing me in really profound ways, in ways that I couldn't deny it anymore. Like I could not deny that this higher power was having a profound impact on how I was experiencing life and relating to others and treating others. And I had tried that before. (laughs) I tried to be a good dude before, okay? And it lasted for a little bit and then it didn't. And it went right back to my old ways again. And this higher power allows me to be able to be the person I really want to be. And we talked about that yeah. difference between who we were and who we want to be. And tell you what, higher power is a big part of helping me be who I want to be today.
1: Yeah, same. And, you know, again, it's back to that progress on perfection. You know, I can do the things that I, I need to do today and, you know, I <laughs> I can I can miss nine of ten of what I was supposed to do, and as long as I don't take a drink, it's okay, and I can do better tomorrow. Whether that's you know any of the things we've already talked about, you know, go to, going to meetings, calling people, praying, you know, um, I keep I keep trying to do the full list, but as long as I'm <laughs> make sure I'm you know not drinking, then. Everything else will keep falling into place.
0: And it's less about checking boxes too, right? and more about being mindful and intentional about what we are doing. Right. You yeah, know, you know, we could check all the boxes. That's great. But if I'm going through the motions, then, you know, it's making no impact on my overall uh, well-being. We have some closing sure. questions. OK, cool. Jeff, what does your daily or regular recovery routine consist of?
1: So I have, I have a few things that I read in the morning. Um, I usually do daily reflections and um, how it works in 86 to 88 and, and prayer. That's sort of my meditation time. And, um, and then Try to call my sponsor. Should call my sponsor every day. Um, <laughs> I try to, I, you know, we definitely talk at least a couple times a week, but that should be a daily thing. I usually go to about four four meetings a week, um, and then you know before before bed I try to do um, ten step and prayer, and you know, and then I definitely have some other alcoholics I communicate with pretty consistently. And then a whole lot of people I should be calling (laughs) more more regularly.
0: I can relate. I am terrible at calling my sponsor, brother. I am terrible at it. And he'll be the first one to tell you. But that sounds like a pretty good recipe, brother, for staying on the proverbial beam. What book or piece of recovery literature or quit lit, as the cool kids call it, had the biggest impact on your recovery
1: well i mean obviously the you know the big book in the 12 and 12 as as far as the approved approved literature
0: (laughs) conference approved literature Um, yeah
1: there there's a book called higher power um that really helped me out a lot i grew up christian and 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 i'm i'm a Christian, I don't really go to church that much, but I'm a Christian. Um, and, but I really struggled with the third step based on this idea from growing up of like, you know, people saying they had like their spiritual walk with Jesus or whatever. Mm-hmm. I sort of never had that. And then it made the third step complicated for me. So, um, so for a long time in my first year of sobriety, you know, for me, higher power was, a itself and the group, um, you know, God as in group of drunks is, is, as I've heard it called. Um, so that really was just this thing that works, that's way bigger than me. Um, and then this book higher power really helped me kind of reconcile, um, my program as my, also my spiritual program. And then, you know, figuring out where Christianity fit in that for me, um, which again, I think, I think some people think that the program is, is too Christian. Mm. Um, it, I believe it doesn't have to be. I really think, especially in Atlanta, you know, there's, I, I hear more people say they're atheists than anything, <laughs> um, but I think, you know, God of, of your understanding makes it pretty open. Um, but it wasn't, so that book just helped me sort of figure out how these two two parts of my life could have their own spaces as well as some overlapping space. Um, so that's a, that's a book I recommend to, you know, to Christians in the program that, um, that struggle with similar things.
0: I love it. And that's a first for us here on the Way Out podcast. So that's great. I love to have a first book recommendation. So that's tremendous. What is the best piece of advice you received in recovery to date?
1: My original home group, this is sort of the mantra of that home group. And it's just simply don't drink, go to meetings. And, you know, it's not, as you get more and more advanced in this, in this program, um, even that simplicity can get me back to the basics Mm. when I'm struggling I um, mean it definitely was what I needed you know 4 years ago right now as I was in my first few weeks of sobriety knowing that all I had to do each day was not drink and go to a meeting um was you know everything kind of fell into place from that mantra and so and it definitely is I mean around here if you if you go to meetings in town Atlanta and that home group or that group is really known, known for that, that mantra of don't drink, go to meetings. So.
0: Keep it simple, right? Yep, absolutely. And this old Tiber, he's not with us anymore. In my first few years of recovery, Tommy. And he would always say. Just don't take the first drink. It's not the caboose that'll kill you. It's the engine. <laughs> it's these very simple. Sayings as yeah. trite as they may sound help us often get back to the basics, yeah, absolutely. What is the greatest challenge you've had in recovery thus far?
1: i I mean honestly, I just the way my brain works is probably the biggest challenge I just <laughs> I think too much um I mean you know, it's, it's part, partly my anxiety and partly just the way my brain works. I just overthink everything. And this, this program, you don't have to overthink it. And so I think I, I am definitely my own greatest challenge um, in, in navigating my own brain. And, um, you know, I have a friend who, who came into the program maybe about six weeks before I did. And his sponsor told him, you know, stop trying to figure it out. You don't have to figure it out. And I remember having lunch (laughs) with him during my first year and saying like, man, I just can't figure this stuff out. And, and, you know, he told me, look, my sponsor says this, don't keep trying to figure it out. But I think that's my biggest challenge is I still, I want to figure everything out. And, you know, it's, it's when I stop trying to figure everything out and let go and turn it over that I, I find myself in healthier, healthier places. So I'm definitely my biggest
0: challenge. <laughs> I could absolutely relate with the biggest challenge being me. Yeah. <laughs> and getting out of my own way. Yeah. Totally. In a variety of ways, analysis by paralysis, for sure. Yeah. And then also. My will, my ego getting in the way of my ability to be able to accept and, and and surrender to what is and then work on what can be.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, and it's funny. So my first, literally a couple of days before my 90 day in February of 2018, I was diagnosed with tongue cancer and I remember, and then I had surgery at the beginning of April. And I remember in one of the, first few meetings back after my surgery, probably like early May of 2018, I shared, you know, it's like we get diagnosed with cancer. Or I got diagnosed with cancer and my daughter was like, all right, you know, we, we can fix this. You know, all we're going to have to do is do surgery. We're going to have to cut off a piece of your tongue. We're going to have to cut your neck open and take out lymph nodes to make sure it hasn't spread. And then you'll be in, you'll be in recovery. And it's like, awesome let's do it when can we you know let's get going and then and it's going to cost you like thousands and thousands of dollars and then in aa it's like we can save your life by all you have to do is not drink come to meetings call three or four alcoholics get a sponsor call your sponsor and all of this is free <laughs> and we're all like no way i can't do any of that can't be that simple it can't be (laughs) like it's just that's how our brains are right like you know i was willing to have all this extreme stuff done to you know to beat cancer and even still you know three years later and luckily you know in um intermission from from the cancer um it's still hard for me to pick up the phone and call three people call three alcoholics a day. Right. I mean, or go to a meeting five times a week. And so it's, it's, it's interesting. And again, it's just the things that we think would be challenges versus what the real challenges are. Right. Like it'd be easy for me to answer your question by saying, well, I got cancer 90 days in, and that was my biggest (laughs) challenge. But It really wasn't my biggest challenge. My biggest challenge has been me the whole time.
0: (laughs) I remember listening to Joe and Charlie early on a lot as I was also reading through the big book and they just kept saying, don't try to figure it out. It's not about trying to understand this. It's not a lack of knowledge. We didn't suffer from a lack of knowledge. We're powerless. We're not knowledgeless, right? So just do these steps in order Mm -hmm. to the best of your ability and just see what happens. You don't have to intellectually understand it in order for it to work. Yeah, totally. And that was my experience because prior to that, multiple times of recovery, trying to intellectualize it and trying to figure it out, take shortcuts so I could apply whatever I thought was the, you know, the essence of it so I could just, you know, go back and drink like I wanted to. Um, No, um, just do them to the best of my ability. Don't try to figure it out and then judge the results. And the results were undeniable.
1: Yeah,
0: and that's the reality. But what is the greatest success you've had in recovery to date?
1: Uh, today, I haven't
0: had a drink. That's a beautiful answer. <laughs> that is a beautiful answer, my friend. And that, and based on, let's look at my app,
1: and that means. I haven't had a drink in fourteen hundred (laughs) and seventy six days. Is
0: 1476 sounds like a. Famous number, but maybe I'm thinking of Christopher Columbus. I digress. (laughs) What is something? You haven't forgiven yourself or someone else for.
1: Hmm. I mean, I, I think there are countless things that I don't forgive myself for. I think I'm just I'm always gonna be way harder on myself than other people. I think I've I've done a decent job getting getting through resentments and you know, have some new ones that I need to tackle, but they're not long standing ones. Um you know, but I think for myself, there's just always gonna be um, you know, I think not probably not getting physically healthy in the past four years, um, that I've, I've gotten more spiritually healthy, more mentally healthy, but, um, I still need to get physically healthy and lose some weight and eat better and drink more water and fewer sodas. And, um, so that's probably the thing that I'm terrible at forgiving myself for, but I'm trying to get a little better at at doing and making those changes. So
0: working on it, a lot of people can relate with that, my friend. And as long as we stay sober one day at a time, those are things that we can work on. Absolutely. This is a fun one. And you're a 90s kid like (laughs) me. What song symbolizes recovery to you? Wow. Go easy on me because I have to listen to this as I'm putting this episode together at some point. So <laughs> go easy on me, Jeff.
1: Oh, wow. I I think you've stumped me. Ah! <laughs> I'm trying to think about...
0: um... And if you don't have a go to sort of r- song that symbolizes recovery to you, then hook us up with a song. That's just your jam. Like this is your go-to jam. He's Spotifying right now. I can tell. So you could also just hook us up with a go-to jam.
1: Yeah. So there's a song by Paramore called 26. Okay. Um, And... I love, I love Paramore Haley Williams. Their lead singer is an amazing storyteller. Um, and so it, that song came out in 2017. And I, I had been listening to that album a lot that year. The album's called After Laughter. Um, and, you know, there's a line in it that says, hold on to hope if you got it. Don't let it go for nobody. All they say, the dreaming is free, but I wouldn't care what it cost me. And I think that, you know, just that hold on to hope part was really, you know, early sobriety for me. Um, I was listening to a lot of Paramore, and um, that was definitely a song that um, that is a a different vibe from most Paramore tracks. And you know, was definitely helpful for me in those in those early days for sure. Had I love think that.
0: About No, I I love that. And I love
1: it. Right. So I had to take myself back there a little bit.
0: That's great. And I'm kind of happy I made you dig for it. Yeah. You know, so that's good. And I can dig me some Paramore. We haven't had that one yet. We have a playlist that we are curating based on the response. Yeah. Based on the responses that we get from each episode. So this will be added. To the way out podcast curated playlist paramore 26 that's tremendous and that's a good jam i bet it, I, I think so cool i'm looking forward to listening to that as i put this year episode together jeff thank you so much brother for being on the way out podcast this was super tremendous it was fun i got a lot uh i got a lot out of it man yeah, this is great, man. Thank you
1: for having me. And if if y'all want to check out the book and the nonprofit that I started, Suicide Survival Stories, um, you can go to www.suicidesurvivalstories.org. And we've got a podcast um, called Suicide Survival Stories where I'm working to share other people's stories who have lost someone to suicide who experienced suicidal ideation or who work in suicide prevention. So um, we only have one episode up of the podcast. Now the next one actually comes out um, right before Christmas and then we'll be doing monthly episodes. So you can, you can read more about don't fucking Kill yourself and suicide survival stories there.
0: I love that. We're going to have all of that in the show notes. So if you're listening right now, check the show notes we will have a direct link to don't fucking kill yourself. We will have a direct link to org. That is super close to my heart that you're sharing suicide survival stories on a podcast. That's amazing. Yeah. Absolutely amazing. Thank you. We are going to have Jeff's contact info in the show notes. We are going to have the song of choice by Paramore in the show notes and Jeff's book recommendation, Higher Power. All of that amazingness is right there in the show notes. So go ahead and check that out ASAP. Jeff, again, thank you, brother, for being on the Way Out podcast. And thank you, everybody out there in Way Out podcast land. We will talk to you next time. Thank you for being a part of the Way Out. We appreciate your ears. We're sharing powerful recovery stories and recovery power topics every week. So keep listening up. If you would like to reach out to the show, you can visit us on the web at wayoutcast.com. That's wayoutcast, all one word, dot com. There you can subscribe to the Way Out podcast on all of the major podcast aggregators, such as iTunes, CastBox, Stitcher, Tune in, Podbean, Overcast, and more. Or simply drop your hosts a friendly email at share at wayoutcast.com. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the show, contact us at share at wayoutcast.com. See you next time, and remember if you don't change, your sobriety date will.